Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here again every Saturday at 12 noon. And uh, I don't know about you, dear listeners, but some of us are not really looking forward to the next six weeks. However, we will bite the bullet and we will talk about what is going on in our election because it's very important for public education that the people in Canberra who have been very, very bad for public education are not returned. Uh, we have a press release this week as the Coalition and Labor parties avoid the public education question, what have the Greens got to offer? Now, we're not saying how you should vote. All we are doing is saying that the Coalition has got nothing to offer. The Labor Party are putting everything off until 2023, and we know how good they and the private school interest have been with secret deals. So where do the Greens stand? And then we'll have a look at the other parties in the coming weeks. But Jeff is going to tell us uh, where the Greens are standing as far as public education is concerned. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's a strange time at the moment, isn't it? And we've got the, the twilight zone, Nanu, 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 where we've got Alan Tudge, who both simultaneously is and isn't in the Cabinet and is and isn't the Education Minister at the moment. So, um, you know, it's a weird time. Let's, let's wonder, let's look at the coalition track record. Now, f this is from our press release, number 932, and the coalition track record on public funding for public education is abysmal and public school supporters should put them last on the preferential ballot. I'm going to say that again. Public school supporters should put the coalition last on their preferential ballot. The Labor Party are a little better putting off a new deal for public education until 2023. And they're not tackling private school rorts and deals, some of which are their responsibility. But the Greens appear to understand the importance of the public school vote. They understand the importance of at least the concept of free education. Though they do not mention secular or compulsory, they criticise private education funding but have no plan for dealing with the private school problem. The, problem, the following is their manifesto. From early childhood to university, education is too expensive. From early childhood through to school, university and TAFE, education should be for free, no matter who you are. Liberal and Labor have allowed too much funding to go to private education and training institutions. Your vote is powerful. If just a few hundred people change their vote, we can kick the Liberals out and put the Greens in balance of power. The Greens pan, plan include, and their pan as well, I suppose, the Greens plan includes free, high-quality, early childhood education and public schools that meet everyone's needs. We will also abolish student debts and restore the TAFE system, which has been privatised by Liberal and Labor. And well, we that's need to good news. All those yeah. young people who can't afford to buy their own home might be able to afford to buy their own home when they start working if they don't have to pay back their hex debt. And I think people should remember it was the Labor Party, Mr Dawkins, as, as the Minister for Education back in the 1980s, who introduced the hex because those of us who are older had free education from go to work. 
And I actually it's marched so in those protests back in the early 90s, Jean, so I remember all of that. You know who uh, else yeah. marched in those uh, anti-hex protests? Yeah. Uh, one Mr Joe Hockey. When he yeah. was a, when he was a student oh, well, a student yeah. rep representative back back when he's a rat bag uh, scrambling around the floor looking for credibility yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like me like yeah. me oh gosh anyway okay. sorry to well, interrupt yeah that's all right uh, so we need to ensure that this is the greens we need to ensure that teachers trainers support staff academics and early childhood educators are paid properly the greens plan is for a genuinely free education for everyone. Liberal and Labor have given billions to private school. I'll say that again, billions to private schools. At the same time, public schools are underfunded and desperate for resources. This means out-of-pocket costs are hiked up and parents are forced to pay sometimes thousands of dollars of voluntary fees. The Liberals have given government money to private schools for infrastructure, whilst public school playgrounds are filled with demountable classrooms and students and staff swelter through summers without air conditioning. If we don't make a big investment in public schools, 99% won't have the funding they need by 2023. The Greens plan includes the largest investment in public education of any party, make public schools genuinely free and have the resources every student needs. Sounds like Finland, like heaven. Ensure there's no expenses for parents for out-of-school hours activities, such as sport and music, which should be considered essential parts of the public curriculum. Increase building and infrastructure funding to $400 million a year and ensure that the majority of funds go to public schools. Invest $68.5 million to provide free period products in all schools to improve students' health and well-being, reduce period stigma and ensure that no student has to skip school during her, their period. Um, that period, of course, not referring to their class period, but to the obvious other type. Fund a national rollout of our Watch's successful Respectful Relationships program in all public schools, including pilot programs to help tailor training to address local contexts and maximise the impact. Well, um, that all sounds quite good, doesn't it? By uh, comparison, at least they've sounds put great. public education on their radar. Um, they're not dealing with the fact that, of course, private schools will continue to charge. Uh, fees and extortionate ones at that and uh, continue to get funding apparently but at least they've got our public schools on the radar. Now the uh, Australian Education Union um, has got their own opinions on what how people public school people should vote this election and uh, Bridget is going to read their press release on this matter. Over to you Bridget. New South Wales Teachers Federation has welcomed the announcement of the federal election on May 21st with President Angelo Gavrilatos declaring the, Mar the Morrison government has got to go. The glimmer of hope we had in 2013 with the introduction of the Gonski School funding reforms has been progressively extinguished by the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments, he said. Under current funding arrangements between the states and territories, public schools are funded at only 87% of what Gonski found necessary for kids to achieve. By contrast, private schools will continue to be funded above and beyond their required levels and continue to receive billions extra in special deals to fund dance theatres, cafes and wellness centres. The Morrison government's recent budget slashed funding from public schools by $559 million over the next three years, yet it increased funding for private schools by $2.6 billion over the forward estimates. The Morrison government likes to talk about record levels of funding, yet their record on funding is one of billions of dollars in special deals and slush funds 
for private schools. The Morrison government's blatant favoritism towards private schools has left every single public school in New South Wales underfunded and without the necessary resources for the students who need it most. The Morrison government does not deserve your vote. Well, there you are. The, the dogs like the AU are saying that anybody who's interested in public education cannot consider the Morrison government when they come to vote. And um, the dogs, of course, say that we should put Mr Morrison last. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to some more interesting material. Uh, what Lindsay Connors has got to say, uh, and she's been around almost as long as the dogs, so we'll see what her view is of the current crisis in education. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and here we are in the week that Mr Morrison was deigned to tell us when we will have the opportunity to vote him out of Parliament. Um, and... Uh, up in New South Wales, they're luckier than us, perhaps, because they have a senator who will be a public education candidate for the Reason Party, uh, Jane Carrow. But um, the conversation, which is a, a fairly academic blog, had a very interesting article this week by Lindsay Connors. So Dale and Sorrell are going to inform you what Lindsay Connors has got to say in an article entitled, Children Overboard. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. Lindsay Connors writes, uh, despite accumulated evidence published in this journal and more broadly of gross and growing inequality in Australian school funding arrangements, this did not rate a mention in the coalition's budget nor feature in responses to it from Labor. Since the 1970s, the net effect of the Commonwealth schools funding policies has been to move our national school system from one broadly grounded in the provision of schooling as a common good to one increasingly driven by a view of schooling as primarily, as primarily a private and positional good. Under the leadership of John Howard, what had been an increasing indifference to public schooling by the conservative side of politics morphed into active hostility. His government's system of public funding for private schools, corrupted as it was by special deals made on political rather than educational grounds, was led to public investment in private schooling, becoming the largest financial commitment by the Commonwealth to the nation's education. While wrongly accusing desperate boat people of throwing their children overboard, John Howard was himself guilty of throwing children overboard. Searching for justifications for this privileging of private schooling, 
Perhaps John Howard's most shameful tactic was his attempts to undermine community confidence in schools with uh, unsubstantiated allegations. It was not therefore surprising at a recent forum of the National Peak Organization for Independent Schools that acting federal education minister, Stuart Robert, demonstrated the same proclivity. Uh, Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Sorrel. Yeah, this acting minister referred in his speech to the importance of kindness and showing respect to one another, what I would call grace, he said. Uh, He then moved on to ingratiate himself with his audience by informing them that the grace you all show was one of the many reasons, one of the reasons many parents choose independent schools. Uh, Minister Robert then proceeded to show precisely the opposite of kindness, respect or grace to the students in public schools across the country and to their teachers. He used the opportunity of a question and answer session to make irresponsible and unsupported claims that the negative trajectory of the Australian school system in terms of both equity and student achievement was the result of the bottom 10% of dud teachers and then claimed that this bottom 10% of dud teachers must be located in public schools by dint of his knowledge that no independent school would tolerate a dud teacher. If this minister's performance did not leave me, this is Lindsay Connors, surprised, it still left me shocked and disappointed. The behaviour of Stuart Robert at the national level is precisely what Pat Thompson has described at the local level. In her book, Schooling the Rust Belt Kids, Thompson documents the behaviour of those who seek to position themselves culturally and class-wise in relation to particular schools and school sectors. Quote, Oral grapevines proliferate with yarns about what happened to the child two doors away, with retold conversations of people in the know. These everyday factual factual oral tendrils work to hold individual schools in their place in the regional hierarchy. They produce long-term patterns of enrolment and expectations that are hard to At the national level, Stuart Robert used what is hoped to be his brief opportunity as an acting minister to plant his grapevines and spread their tendrils to do a negative PR job on the whole public school sector. It would be honest here to admit that I may well be overly sensitive to such oral tendrils as a result of what may be an untypically high exposure to them throughout my adult life. The fact is, that parents' decisions to spend their own money on sending their children to private schools are made within a policy framework set by government. And I've tried to confine my attention to that public policy framework. One problem of being known as an advocate of public schools, however, has been the number of parents who have opted for private schooling and their parents as well, and who appear to feel that they owe an explanation. Like those of their political leaders over the years, these parental explanations have ranged from the ingenious to the inane and have included the specious and the bizarre. They are generally embarrassing to both parties in the conversation. 
some parents are eager to point out that sending their children to private schools confirms that they're a better class of parent whose reasons for exercising this option will be as fascinating to others as to themselves. Others seem apologetic, especially when their decisions seem strangely at odds with their often stridently expressed principles. Others refer to characteristics peculiar to their own children. For example, oh, he's very small for his age. Uh, I have had a few friends, acquaintances, and even casual contacts who are parents of an only child, aware that I, Lindsay Connors, had four children, explaining their decision to me in the following words. Oh, we just have the one, and we really want to give her a good education. Is there any other inference to be drawn from this other than an insult that parents who have been so careless as to produce four offspring are hardly likely to care whether they have a good education either individually or collectively? What I find hardest of all to stomach are those politicians and parents whose parting shot in such conversations is to cite serious problems in public schools, even implying that these left them no option but private schooling. During my time as senior officer in a state education department, it seemed to me only responsible to take such claims at face value and to ask for more information with a view to investigating them further. In two or three cases, there was a trace of truth in their allegations, but it had been magnified and misinterpreted out, out of all proportion. It became my practice to also ask those making such allegations whether or not they had taken the matter up with the appropriate authority at either the local school, regional or department level. Invariably, they had not. It is hard to have respect for parents, let alone a minister, even an acting one, whose response to credible evidence of genuine and serious problems in a public school is to send their own children to private schools and to leave to their fate those students for whom this is not an option. It is even harder to have respect for those who decide to spread unfounded rumours in order to convince themselves or others of the wisdom of their decision to go private. It was a relief to see both the logic and the credibility of Stuart Roberts' claims demolished by those with greater knowledge and understanding of this nation's school system than his own. Sydney University academic Rachel Wilson and school educators, researchers and authors Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell have d demonstrated that there is no available evidence to provide backing for the assertions made by Stuart Roberts. It is not too late for the Prime Minister to ask those kinds of questions of his appointee as Acting Federal Minister for Education. There's an urgent need, given the global, environmental, political, social and economic challenges that will confront this and coming generations of students, to provide all our skills, schools with adequate and appropriate resources in terms of quantity and quality, giving priorities to those with the greatest needs. The coalition government has perverted the purpose of the schooling resource standard designed to reduce gaps for which there can be no educational justification in order to achieve its own political priority to further entrench privilege for already advantaged students, primarily in the private sector while shortchanging the rest, primarily those in public schools. 
To take New South Wales as an example, the entire public school system sits more than 10% below its minimum SRS funding levels since the adoption of the Gonski needs-based funding model in 2013. In his 2020 analysis of the funding of 343 independent schools, economist Adam Rorris found that 130 of these were overfunded by a total of $120 million. Shortchanging our schools at this time will have negative consequences both in the short and the long term. In his recent article in this journal, uh, Bruce Haig referred to the collapse of what used to be the structural and ethical norms of our society and claimed that the rot began with John Howard. This is certainly the case in relation to the norms that govern schooling. These included an understanding that the primary obligation of governments here was to maintain a system of, strongly, of strong and socially representative public schools of the highest quality. This was based on the reality that public schools are fundamental to ensuring that all children have access in their own right to the quality of curriculum and teaching that provides them with the opportunity to achieve their personal best. I remain shocked and disappointed that we'll be going to a federal election with a person acting as education, as Minister for Education, about whom there is sufficient evidence to raise doubts about his fitness for this office. And Lindsay Connors has held senior positions in education at both national level and in New South Wales. And uh, in 2015, she co-authored Imperatives in School Funding, Equity, Sustainability and Achievement. Back to you, Jean. Well, Lindsay Connors has been around for some time, of course, and uh, you know she has been quite influential in education. But my memory is that as a as a state school representative on the old schools commission, uh, she was rather tardy in writing a few dissenting reports, um, mainly because uh, members of her family uh, were involved in those days with the um, private school interest. But uh, she certainly. Uh, getting pretty ag aggro against Morrison and Howard, of course. And there is no doubt that things have been much, much worse since the 1990s and Howard's um, arrangements to give more and more money to the private system. The private system is, in fact, the old denominational system of the 19th century. And it never did work. It never will work because it is not open to all of the children of the nation. But we'll have a bit of a break and uh, we're going to come back to talk about another one of Mr Howard's um, thought bubbles, which turned into uh, something that didn't quite work, which is the, um, uh, the Religious Discrimination Bill. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral 
racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and um, we've got some quite a lot of more interesting material for you. But first of all, Dale is going to uh, tell us about what The Guardian had to say uh, this week about the um, Christian lobby groups and Mr Morrison. Uh, I mentioned before the break that uh, Mr Howard had had thought bubbles. His thought bubbles, of course, were about putting... Uh, religious men into all state schools as well as private schools, the chaplaincy program, which was uh, found to be unconstitutional the way he did it uh, by the High Court, but all they did then was to change it and give the money through Section 96 grants. But the chaplaincy programs have been uh, not a very happy introduction into the state sector because what our schools need, particularly now with the children returning from lockdown, are counsellors, school counsellors, secular school counsellors, not uh, people who are wanting to push particular religious ideas. But over to you, um, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, this is an article by Paul Carp from The Guardian uh, about Christian lobby groups pushing the major parties to support unamended religious discrimination bills. So Family Voice says Labor is not to blame for Morrison's failure to pass the bill as Albanese pledges to extend the school chaplaincy program with secular pastoral care. So Christian lobby groups are pressing both major parties to recommit to the unamended religious discrimination bill as Labor guarantees to extend the chaplaincy program with a secular choice for schools. Guardian Australia understands Labor has told Family Voice it has consistently supported the $61 million a year chaplaincy program but will move to give schools the option of a secular pastoral care worker. The opposition is being pressured by Christian Schools Australia to ditch its proposed changes to the Religious Discrimination Bill. On Tuesday, Scott Morrison stopped short of recommitting to the Religious Bill and blamed Labor for his government's decision not to put it to a Senate vote in February. That prompted outrage from a Family Voice uh, spokesperson, Greg Bondar, who said that it was not true true to blame Labor for Morrison's failure to pass the bill, instead blaming five Liberal MPs for a deal with the Attorney-General to protect LGBTQIA plus students from discrimination. In February, Labor helped pass the Religious Discrimination Bill in the lower house, but along with five Liberal MPs across the floor, added amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act to protect LGBTQIA plus students. Facing a revolt from Conservatives who found the amendments unacceptable, 
the Morrison government shelved the bill, which did not pass the Senate despite bipartisan support for banning discrimination on the grounds of religion. On Tuesday, Morrison incorrectly claimed the bill didn't have bipartisan support, arguing that the Labor Party used it as a Trojan horse to seek to make other changes. I found it very disappointing, he said. Asked if he'd commit to reintroduce and pass the bill in the next term, Morrison said his views about protecting people against religious discrimination are well known and my credibility on those issues are not challenged or under question. Bondar said Morrison must commit to pass the bill. He noted that Labor has committed to passing a religious discrimination bill, including maintaining the right of religious schools to preference people of faith in their selection of staff. Christian and faith-based groups are very disappointed at Morrison's failure to come good with the promised bill, he said. One Nation has recommitted to the bill and its leader Pauline Hanson has taken aim at Morrison for capitulating to liberal moderates and announcing more protections for students who didn't need them. Christian Schools Australia's Director of Public Policy, Mark Spencer, said it had sought a commitment from both parties to reintroduce and pass the bill in its original Labor had called for a range of other amendments banning racial vilification and removing the controversial statements of belief clause. Spencer warned Labor against the strong temptation to want to put a stamp on a piece of legislation that had already been a subject of extensive consultation. Since the 2019 election, Labor has been seeking to extend an olive branch to religious communities. Labor told Family Voice it's committed to give the schools the option to choose either a professionally qualified secular student welfare officer or a chaplain with ongoing qualification requirements to ensure that our students are appropriately supported. On Saturday, Guardian Australia revealed claims by a former chaplain that schools ministry groups, the second largest chaplaincy provider, imposes a, a code that discriminates against staff based on relationship status and sexual conduct. Cara Larson also claimed a, an SMG manager blamed a child's behavioural issues on a demonic response to the presence of God that chaplains brought to the school. SMG has said it does not endorse the comments which are under investigation by the South Australian Education Department. Nadia David, Labor's candidate for Indy, linked to the story on Twitter questioning why are we paying for religious chaplains in state schools? The independent MP Zali Stagal said there was a value in the breadth of pastoral care services provided by the chaplaincy program as a supplement to formal counselling, but schools should be allowed more choice. The independent candidate for Boothby, Joe Dyer, said requiring support to young people to be provided by chaplains undermines the important principle of the separation between church and state. I support schools being able to access the funds currently provided through the National Schools Chaplaincy Program to buy a range of pastoral and psychological support services. In December, an inquiry into mental health chaired by Liberal MP Fiona Martin called for an independent evaluation of the chaplaincy program. The independent candidate for Curtin, Kate Cheney, supports the call. It's appropriate that we're re reviewing uh, whether wellbeing outcomes are best served through the current chaplaincy program, she said. The Education Department has agreed to the independent evaluation, which is also a condition of the chaplaincy agreement with the states. Back to you, Jean.
Yes, well, the whole chaplaincy issue, of course, has introduced the idea of, of religious discrimination into our state schools uh, because these uh, people to uh, get a job have got to have uh, a religious inclination. And um, there was also a case during the week where one of them actually blew the whistle because she was under, under pressure from the group that were putting her forward to join a particular church and um, uh, to uh, not live in sin and various other things. But, um, yes, uh, employment should not uh, involve religious discrimination of any sort, particularly if public money is concerned. And uh, that's why people are very concerned about um, what the the private schools, the private religious schools, are able to do uh, with their employment contracts. But um, that's enough of that. We'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to talk about what's actually going on in the schools. Principals and teachers are exhausted. After the lockdown, when they didn't have any lockdown really, or certainly no holiday, they had to work 60, 70 hours a week and uh, they are exhausted and what's happening to them. So we'll have a bit of a break and Sorrel and Bridget are going to tell us about that. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377. Each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m. and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419837. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. term the children went back to school and so did the teachers and um, I know a principal who has decided that she so much enjoyed teaching her own children at home on top of course of being a principal online that she's going to resign and take her children around Australia and enjoy being a mother because uh, she's had enough. I think this is very sad because we can't afford to lose our teachers in this way, but um, we are. And there's a very interesting article, The Straw That Broke the Camel's Back. Over to you, Bridget. Victorian principals are bringing their retirements forward due to exhaustion and burnout amid warnings that the job has become so demanding that fewer teachers are aspiring to the role. Australian Principal Federation Victoria, Victorian President Tina King has a significant percentage of the organisation's 1,500 members 
had either retired or were considering retirement due to increased workload and COVID-related pressures. Our leaders have been admired for the ways they have navigated through the, through the challenges, but there's a toll, she said. The Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership's latest National Teacher Workforce Report released in December found that one in four teachers intended to leave the profession before retirement with most citing unmanageable workload. Veteran educator Phil Anthony, who retired last year after working as a principal in four Melbourne schools, said there were fewer applicants for principal jobs because the emerging leaders were thinking twice about the breadth of responsibilities a principal takes on. They are looking at the role of principals and thinking twice about it, he said. The lack of willing principals could become a problem with the swelling number of student enrolments. The Australian Bureau of Statistics predicts a 21% increase in school enrolments in 2030 compared with last year. Loretta Piazza has been a principal at Metaglen Primary School for 18 years and is set to retire mid-year. She said COVID-19 was the straw that broke the camel's back. With the school coming in and out of lockdown and juggling teacher absences while working 50 to 60 hour weeks, she thought, I can't keep doing this. A lot of principals have gone. There's no doubt about it, she said. Over to Sarah. Thanks, Bridget. So these issues are echoed in the Australian Catholic University's recent Australian Principal Occupational Health and Wellbeing Survey of 2021, where they surveyed 2,590 school leaders and found that principals across Australia were exposed to the highest burnout rates in a decade and experienced frequent physical violence and threats. The survey found 30.1% of Victorian principals were threatened with violence compared to just 7.8% of the general population and 21.3% experienced physical violence. Nationwide, 29% were deemed at risk for mental health and self-harm. The survey found principals and deputy principals were working on average of 55 to 60 hours of work a week. Mark Grant, the chief executive officer of the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership, said principals were reporting working double hours due to additional red tape and administration. What I'm hearing is that whatever the teacher shortage has been in the past year or two, it's quickly becoming a principal shortage, a leadership shortage, he said. He said the state governments recently launched Victorian Academy of Teaching and Leadership Education was a good step in encouraging teachers to gain expertise and follow pathways to school leadership. But without addressing the red tape and the administrative burden, violence and abuse and unwieldy expectations on schools, it's almost like you're clapping with one hand, he said. The Department of Education said there has been a decline in attrition rates for principals since the start of the pandemic and an increase in the number of teacher registrations since June 30, 2021. But Ms King said that's not what they were hearing. There's a lag in their data, let me tell you. Certainly, that is not what we see. What we see contradicts that, she said. According to Victorian Principal Association President Andrew Dalglish, a number of principals were retiring because they were exhausted. That's a general comment from all educators, he said. One principal commenting on the condition of anonymity recently brought her retirement forward by more than a year 
because she felt she wasn't getting the support from the education department that she needed in the taxing role. She said that when it came to COVID-19, there was a delay getting information from the department. When there's a crisis, a death in the community, whenever something like that happens, when the fires happen, when the floods happen, people go to schools. That's where they congregate and that's where they want support. And that all falls back on the principal, she said. It's the same with COVID. Well, thank you, Bridget and Sorrel. That article, The Straw That Broke the Camel's Back, School Principals Opt for Retirement as Burnout Bites, was uh, written by Nicole Purcell on April the 11th in The Age. And uh, we thought that you might be interested in it. We'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back with Jeff and we'll be off to America. Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're still listening to The Dogs program, I hope, because we've got Jeff with news from America. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, this is an article by Jeff Bryant, uh, writing in The Progressive, which is an American uh, uh, school, public schools advocate uh, project. Uh, Biden takes an aim at wasteful spending on charter schools, charter schools being their word, of course, for private schools. Like we have to remind people what these things are. And the reason we look at America is sometimes they're a bit of a lead for what happens in Australia later on. So Jeff Bryant is... Uh, goes on to say, President Joe Biden is taking steps to ensure that federal education funding will not be squandered on unneeded, mismanaged schools and the operators wanting to profit off taxpayers. But these efforts are being opposed by the powerful ch uh, charter school lobby, which has enjoyed a privileged status in the United States Department of Education, granting charter operators exclusive access, access to an annually renewable grant program established under the government's charter school pro program, or CSP. Since its inception in 1994, CSP has awarded an estimated $4 billion to charter schools, charter industry-related advocacy and support groups, and state grant programs that fund charters. This year's 
CSP's budget was $440 million. So where has all that money gone? And, and as a 2019 analysis of the CSP conducted by the Network for Public Education revealed, 37% of the program's grantees, that's 1,779 charter schools, had either never opened or had quickly shut down after getting the federal funds. According to a separate report, report published in 2021, more than $158 million in grant money from CSP went to charter schools owned by for-profit operators between 2006 and 2017, despite a 2006 court ruling that upheld the decision to ban the program from supporting for-profit companies. The Biden administration's proposals would address this wasted and misguided spending. Now, to ensure federal funds don't go to charter schools that never open quickly or, or, clo or quickly close, the Education Department proposes that a grant application proposing to open a new charter school or replicate or expand an existing one should conduct an assessment of community needs and submit a community impact analysis demonstrating there is sufficient demand for the school. Given that the number one reason charter, clo charter schools close is due to financial problems, typically caused by a school's inability to enrol enough students. It makes sense that any effort to grow charters should be based on some analysis that shows the school will be viable. The Biden administration is also proposing that any recipient of charter grants could, should collaborate with a public school or school district on critical activities such as transportation or teacher professional development. Because poor management is the second most frequent cause of charter school closures, Partnering charters with the expertise of local educators can provide helpful oversight. Also, having a district directly engaged with the charter school ensures the local community has sufficient skin in the game to make the effort to keep to help struggling, a struggling charter succeed. And of course, we at the dogs don't really believe in charters. We would rather see all schools be made public, but you know, we dream. Charter school, back to the article, charter school industry, industry lobbyists have responded to these proposals with a campaign of hyperbolic misinformation. To bring the CSP in line with the department's requirements, the Biden administration is strengthening the regulatory language to bar grant money from going to charters in which a for-profit management company exercises full or substantial administrative control over the charter school. Applicants to federal grant programs should still contract with for-profit companies for the wide range of services schools have customarily outsourced, but funds would be prohibited from going to charters that simply hand over the bulk of their finances, including federal grant money, to for-profit operators, operators who can spend it on whatever they want. Charter school, it sounds a bit like here, Charter school industry lobbyists have responded to these proposals with a campaign of hyperbolic misinformation, as I said earlier. In an Email to constituents, Nina Rees, the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, calls the proposed regulations a backdoor attempt to prevent new charter schools from opening. In an op-ed for The Hill, Will Marshall, the president and founder of Public Policy Institute, a beltway think tank that advocates for charter schools, called the Biden administration's proposal an attack on charter schools by bureaucratic gremlins. Right-wing media outlets have taken up the charter's lobby campaign the National Review, for example, equated the Biden administration's proposal to a war on charter schools, while the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal labelled the proposals charter school sabotage, oh, the poor dears. But very few of the roughly 7,700 charter schools or 3.4 million students enrolled in them will be affected by these regulatory changes, and charter lobbyists have provided no data showing how the changes will slow new charter growth, which jumped by a robust 7% in 2021. 
Also, it seems odd to see prominent conservative voices who have questioned federal spending on education and even advocated for the federal government to have no role in education funding at all to oppose the crackdown on questionable spending by the Department of Education. But that is indicative of the carte blanche status the charter school industry has enjoyed in Washington, D.C. for years now. The reason for conservatives' ire has everything to do with the fact that Biden's new guidelines guidelines are poised to bring that freewheeling era to an end. I'm sure the freewheeling will continue as it does here in Australia. Uh, that's, very interesting, uh, that's isn't it? Very They're a very powerful lobby there. It's called rorting. It's called yep. rorting. Uh, yep. Rorting public purse. And it's actually children's future at stake. But... Um, and the public schools, of course, in America have suffered grievously with these. Uh, well, I wouldn't call them education institutions. They're for-profit institutions. They're making profits at the public's expense every way, which way. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, that's a semi-good news story. Any more good news stories from America? Yeah, there's one from Illinois on Dinah Ravitch's blog, Jane. Um, it's about there's a big win for those opposed to the mandatory testing of very young children. They've got a similar scheme there as the uh, NAPLAN that they've imposed on really young kids, kids from kindergarten to grade two. And um, they're, they're finding that um, some of the students are being hothoused in order to uh, gain you know, better marks for the school, better, you know, they're concentrating and focusing on the testing for these kids. And so there's a pushback from this in, in uh, Illinois where they've, cut, they've introduced a bill in the General Assembly uh, this session, and it's called the Too Young to Test Bill. Uh, it received broad and bipartisan report from legislators in the Coalition of Illinois Parents, education, Educators, Researchers and Advocacies groups concerned about the possible encroachment of the state testing system into this young age group. The Too Young to Test Bill prevents the state from requiring or paying for any non-diagnostic non standardised test of, for children before the third grade. Too Young Thank to you. Test, the bill, seeks to safeguard the early years by ensuring the Illinois, Illinois State Board of Education does not spend finite resources or require standardised assessments in this kindergarten to grade two that have been proven to be developmentally inappropriate during such a fluid time of child development. And so essentially they've passed a bill that's uh, said, yeah, we don't, we're not testing kids that age. You know, they're too young to test. It's developmentally inappropriate and uh, no more of that rubbish. And I think there's, there's... They might actually be listening to some educators for a change. Oh, look, I, I, just one, one thing. I was listening to the former Prime Minister of Finland yesterday uh, discussing the misinformation the Russians are putting out about them at the moment. And he said, you know what? In Finland, our population is very well educated. And he's right. They're 100% public educated. And that's why they're the best system in the world. Over yeah. to you, uh, Jean. Yes, well, thank you very much. We've had a couple of good news stories there and we've got an even better one coming up with our great state store. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Yeah. 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 
And this week's Great State School of the Week is Coburg Primary School. And here's a little bit about their values from their website. Our school values underpin everything we do at Coburg Primary School and are part of everyday life for the staff, student, students and families. We try to instill in ourselves and others the ability to look at the bright side of things, using humour appropriately to ease tensions and learning to laugh at oneself and with others. Our students are encouraged to examine both their behaviour and learning styles to ensure that they fit with our school values. Honesty. When we're honest, we're being open and truthful in our actions, thoughts and words. Honesty shows both self-respect and respect for others. Learning. We value learning when we respect our own and everyone else's right to learn, taking responsibility for the way we interact and cooperate with other students and teachers. We strive to become creative thinkers and to develop work habits that allow us to produce excellent work that we can be proud of at all times. Resilience. We show that we can use a range of strategies to overcome different types of adversity or hardship and bounce back whilst continuing to remain positive and be willing to try again. Teamwork. We demonstrate teamwork when we can work together with a group of people to achieve positive outcomes. And respect. We are respectful when we're polite, considerate and thoughtful to all others regardless of gender, age, race, religion or disability. We show respect to our friends, our families, our teachers and members of the community. We also try to earn the respect of others. So that's a little bit from their website. Now some facts and figures from the ACARA website. The school has 289 students and the ICSIA value is quite high. Above the average, it's at 1,089. Their students are representative of the community. This is a mainly middle-class community with many refugee families. So 41 have parents from the upper uh, 31% in income, 25% uh, of students in the second highest, then 9% uh, from the third quartile and 2% from the poorest, 25% of the community. 35% of the pupils speak a language other than English and there are no Indigenous students here. Uh, it's a school full of advantaged students with dedicated principals and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $11,660. Uh, which is below the Gonski Resource Standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $675,000 uh, $675, from the federal government and $2.7 million from the state government, $127,000 from in fees and $72,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $241,000. So all this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results indicate that the children in this school, many of whom have a language other than English at home, are progressing well. So congratulations to the dedicated staff at this school in Coburg. Congratulations, Coburg Primary. You are this week's Great State School of the Week. Well, and that's the end of our time, I'm afraid. It's gone. We've had... I don't know about you, we've enjoyed ourselves with all of this information and uh, we're looking forward, well, we're not looking forward to the next six weeks, but we'll do our best to inform you in the next six weeks 
about what is going on politically in uh, funding and other things for public education in this country. But uh, if you want to find out more about us and about today's program, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But from Dale and Bridget and Jeff and Sorrel and me, it's bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.